just at the time you're going, we've, we've got nothing, we've got, I've got wages to pay in a week, and you're going, shit, this is crap. I've been busy now for 16 years. Surely I'm better than this. Surely I should be smarter than, than doing what I'm doing. So it's just, you know, that's that self-doubt that just really creeps along. This week, I talk with serial entrepreneur, rocket scientist, and explorer wannabe Ben Hirons. In this episode, Ben and I discuss his broken business partnerships, the little secret that he kept from his wife to keep his company afloat, and the importance of brand positioning in the success of any business. Ben is one of the leading marketing minds in Australian business, and over the past 20 years, he has started and grown three successful businesses, researched over a thousand SMEs, and studied the great marketeers of our generation. Ben is armed with double degrees in business and aerospace engineering and has the hands-on experience that comes from being a serial entrepreneur. My name is Nick Aradambas and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Uh, okay, welcome back to It's Not Over. As you know, I'm your host, Nick Haralamis, and with me today is Ben Hirons. Okay, I thought maybe, you know, maybe it's a silent H, who knows. Welcome, and thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm very good. Thank, thank you for having me. You are, I think, the first Australian I've had on this show. Ooh, it's a bit exciting. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. We'll find out. So, Ben, tell us about who you are and what you do, and then we'll dive into your near business experiences, because we have multiple on this episode. <laughs> Once again, not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Ben Hirons, I've got a small search marketing company called Do North, which we've had, it's probably our fifth venture, for want of a better word, over 20 odd years. So it's that old phrase of a 20 year overnight success or whatever they say. And yep. ultimately, it's I guess I'm an engineer by background. So it's how we bring an engineering discipline to the often gray world of, of marketing. Today, we're a very small team of sort of five. We only work with 12 to 15 clients. And I guess one of the... Latest lessons in my life is, you know, let's let's just get a lot better at what we do versus trying to grow too much. So, yeah, it's, it's a yeah, good little business. I like that immediately off the bat, that phrase, better at what we do, less growth. I've been playing around with a couple of my coaching clients with the idea of, you know, that phrase when you get fuck you money, when, you know, <laughs> I'm going to have fuck you money. And I think that we need to shift that, uh, like that's kind of what people go for in profit, fuck you profit. I'm gonna have so much profit that I'm just a unicorn. I think we need to go for stable profit. And that's kind of the language you seem to be speaking is better at what we do, fewer clients who pay us more that we make money. Yeah, you're spot on the mark. I mean, it's through entrepreneurs organization and, and I'll never forget there was six, all business owners, so six of us just standing around the water cooler at, at a break and all six went around and they said, I've made more money out of my investments and probably than I have out of my business. So it, just, it becomes a very interesting concept of stable, steady income that you invest elsewhere. Yeah, it's and it's an interesting one. Most entrepreneurs try to diversify their income and investments before they've got a single cash cow. And that's a fundamental mistake, is you need the stable income to diversify out of that business. You can't diversify without the stable income. Correct. Correct. You need the yeah. cash cow. <laughs> Spot on. Okay. So where are we going to start? Tell me about the the first business you want to discuss with us. Tee it up. Give us some context on the company and what you were doing at the time. How many people, whatever information is relevant, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, look, it's probably just easy to go chronological. So our first business started in 2003 was a payments business. So we effectively took one of the big banks in Australia's transactional banking products, put our logo on them and sold them to small business. And just, you know, I was 26. 
five or six when I started. You're young and naive. You don't know what the hell you're doing, but you think you can take on the world. And I think we got pretty lucky in those first sort of three odd years. We did did really well. So we went from starting myself in one bedroom apartment in in Melbourne through at our peak we had about 35 marketing and sales staff up and down the eastern seaboard um, doing all manner of sales and, and marketing um, door knocking cold calling digital you name it we, we were doing it at the time so did, did really well as I said till about 2009 obviously GFC hit and that was really our first eye opener in terms of how fragile businesses really are so once again we were on the we're on the transactional side of banking so the GFC was all about the lending side which we weren't part of but the, the flow and effect the relationships overall across the board is, is obviously um, paramount to banks so we went from being uh, the golden child to being the, the ass of the bank's world and they really just didn't want to have anything to do with us so it was really fascinating to watch overnight how important relationships are but also I guess the security in, in your business's revenue model so just uh, how you minimize risk becomes a, a vital part of, of of any business owner and it's, it's interesting you said that, that I think a lot of businesses have one or two near-death experiences I guess uh, my take on it is you, you're kind of always a near-death experience I just don't think you realize it at the time <laughs> <laughs> that's that's dark and sad and true but perfect <laughs> you're always one one day away from death in a business i mean fair enough it's it actually it harks very closely to uh, the, the similar but opposite to amazon's it's always day one i don't know if you've come across that yep. with jeff bezos yep. Yep. And, and like it, it's kind of the same thinking but the opposite and I think they both play together really nicely that if it's always day one and you're always on death's doorstep do whatever you need do whatever you want like this is your business go for it yep oh, spot on the mark once again it's it's that journey right we all think we all hope we're here till we're 80 or 90 if a, a blip that happens today whilst today might feel like it's a, an earthquake it actually when you look back in three years you're gone it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me and I just I remember that's 12 months ago, um, just going through a bit of a, just, just pain personally with things. And one of the colleagues at the time said, there's this great book called uh, Necessary Endings. And it talks about, you know, it's actually required for you to have end some things to be able to move forward to other things. So it's just, it was a really powerful concept in terms of, you know, it's just, it's just a door, one door closes and another one's going to open for you. I've, I've had to kind of evolve that thinking with mentors, business partners, that sometimes it's better if they end. Or fair, you and I were talking about one of my near-death experiences when my business partner sold the business behind my back. <laughs> and truth be told, that's a good sign that it needs to end. Like, whatever you think you want to do, save the business, recover, save face, get bigger investments. My investors were like, this is done now. Yep. We invested in two founders and one of them doesn't want to be here. This is done. And looking back, it was three months of depression for me, but actually was probably the best thing for my career in the long term. Similar, I've had three business partners and I, I really envy people that have a very great business partnership and mine have all been amicable but, but horrible endings that yeah, you just want to be very careful of. And I think similar to you, right? one of my rules I learned was my second business partner in a side venture we had, had ultimate control of our business. And he right really screwed me. <laughs> and I've gone from that day, wow. I will never, ever give somebody control of my life again. Obviously, a doctor and that sort of stuff is a bit of a different proposition, but certainly from a, a business perspective, 
not being able to control your destiny and having somebody else do yeah. it for you is uh, yeah something I'll, I'll never do ever again. Yeah, that's interesting. I am um, at the end of my business partner relationship, that bad one. I started to evolve what I call my nickisms. They're my values, the things that I live by, and I've I've codified them and write them down. And one of them, thanks to him, is trust people until they give you a reason not to. Ben, I want to not get too sidetracked, so let's jump back to this payments company. 2003, you started, and then 2008-9, something happened, and the bank started to pull back. Yeah, so there's there's multiple aspects to it, which, you know, it's always fascinating when you actually look in hindsight. It's There's always multiple things. It's not one thing. I'm going to, I'm going to divest, digest a little bit here, but it, I think it's a good story. When I was at uni, I did, as I said, did engine, aerospace engineering at uni, and there's a second year subject called issues in engineering, which being a, a young, naive 19-year-old at the time, I thought was a complete crap, uh, wank of a subject, pardon my French, which might be an Australianism. Um, I thought it was just going to be fluffy and, and boring, right? But the actual subject turned out to be probably my most favorite subject at university. And what I did, I went through and studied all the major disasters, engineering disaster at times. So we studied the Challenger disaster. In Australia, there's a Westgate bridge that fell down and killed 10-odd people or something. There's the Tahoma Narrows in the US. So, And ultimately, looked at the, the final catastrophic event is, was based on seven major um, hurdles, that if I had stopped any one of those hurdles, it would never have happened. And I, I kind of look back at that, that first near death that did become death experience was there were multiple facets going on at once. And once again, if you could stop one of them, the flow and effect would be would be really, um, well, who knows, it'd be different, right? But so a couple of things at the time. So one, we tried to grow too, too big too quickly, and we pseudo-franchised our, our business and brand to somebody in Sydney, and they did a lot of not so ethical things, which banks don't like, as, as you probably probably gather. So we just had a, a, a shitstorm of... As, uh, was that as de- kind as an Australian can be? Not so good things. <laughs> <laughs> you're, just, you're putting out fires, trying to mend relationships yeah. and train people to do the right way. Uh, etc. Um, then we, once again, my first business partner at the time was saying, we've got to expand, we've got to grow and we've got to develop. And I also knew in my gut at the time, that's not what we should be doing. Back to that risk profile of having one client and just or one, one revenue stream, etc. was doing well. But there's also a, a few other facts that I knew wasn't quite right in my gut, but I listened to my head, which logic said, let's grow and let's go. There was obviously GFC, right? The financial crisis out of the US. The, yeah. So what's fascinating about Australia was I think Australia was one of the only countries where the um, banks were pretty secure and safe. They weren't really uh, had didn't have a massive amount of risk um, associated with it. So they they basically just shut up shop. They actually didn't want new customers. They they ended up with massive queues of people leaving second and third tier lenders to come back to the Australian banks. So they then went from hungry for new clients to you know we actually don't want any new clients. There's too much risk associated with people we don't know. So just their once again their ability to provide our product that we're reselling was just dry, dried up significantly. This business is going nowhere. It just it died a long, slow, painful death over the next sort of four or five years that we went from sort of total staff about 40, turning over three, three and a half to four million uh, down to end up with two people, 2014. So we fought a long, hard fight that was, was once again, there was three years in there where we just kept hitting a head against a brick wall, trying to change people's minds, trying to show them we could do different things and that sort of thing. And it's... You know, so you, you don't you can't fight the tide, right? It's like when you're caught in the rip in the ocean, you got to go with it and then figure out a way to navigate it later. So it was just yeah, well, it's fascinating how there's so many things at play. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. 
please right now stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google or YouTube, then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. The the thing that absolutely stuns me and I, I'm pretty certain you wouldn't do this again is the slow decline of this business like looking back do you regret not just ripping the band-aid off so like in a way we kind of did so from 2009 through to 2012 give or take we were heading ahead against the brick wall and declining but we're still trying to run that business and continue it and it was really uh, you know <laughs> you can only do it for so long before you wake up with a with a headache and you're going it's time to move on um and so we still, we were able to build a model that we could still draw a bit of money out of from 2012 through to 2015. So that was really, you know, this isn't working for us, but we've got some skill sets. What else can we be doing with that skill set? So that was really, so for us, 2012 through to 2015, was really trying a heap of new things with some with some success and some with other success. And once again, in hindsight, you realize why some were successful and, and others weren't. But the sort of the two ventures in there that, that I really liked, we got off the ground did well. And once again, there were two partners that, that two different reasons that, that I couldn't control it. Uh, actually, there's actually a third one in there that, that really screwed me, but that's another story. So it's just, you, you just, whilst people are nice and they're lovely, you, you, you've also got to protect yourself. And I don't, it's not, you don't do that in a selfish, vindictive way, is that ultimately when, when push comes to shove and, and people are drowning, they're, they're going to try and save themselves before they save you. So it's, um, you just got to make sure you, you have the right risk mechanisms in place to protect yourself first. Yeah, but that wasn't the case for this first business that we're talking about. This was more just environmental that just didn't really recover. Uh, macroeconomics that never really allowed your business to find another seed. Uh, yes, it was also, uh, um, yeah, once again, your hindsight's a fabulous thing, right? So there was another company at the time doing very similar things to us, but they invested a fair bit more in their technology and also raised a shit ton more money that they ended up going down a different path that, that obviously wasn't beholden to the banks. I mean, they just, they floated last year for 1.6 billion. So talk about, when you talk about that, that, that fuck ton of money type concept, you go on, we had a more successful business and we were doing better and, and had better ability to generate revenue and it, there they are and here we are. So it's once again, it's the measurement timeframe's got to be over five and 10 years and not over three and six months. How did it feel when they, they listed, you said they listed or they sold for 1.6 billion? I listed. Um, it's awful. You go, what did they do right? What did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? Uh, you're a smart cookie, Ben. Why didn't you see that coming? So it's it's like it's it's awful. Um, and then you sort of once like I said, so I'm 45 now, which you also you know whilst it's a bit morbid, you're halfway to death. So it's kind of like what's I mean, sure. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's important to you is and like you know what I remember reading Ricardo Semler getting through it when I was in uni, and he was going, you know what, the magic mark is twelve million dollars. He goes, anything above twelve million dollars is there's no difference, right? You've got your two or three holiday houses, you've got your house, you've got your nice cars, you're traveling business class around the world, right? He goes, once you get twenty, fifty, a hundred million dollars. There's no different, right? Your yacht might be a bit bigger and you might be in a private jet versus first class or something else, but it actually doesn't make a material difference to your life. So I think back, back to your point of being clear in terms of what your values are and documenting them is is what's important. And, you know, So when I saw that, you, you guarded for a day or two and then I look over at my two great kids. I live in a beautiful part of the world. 
don't work particularly hard. I'm easily fit and healthy, and you're going, you know, life's actually not too bad when you when you look at it, what else is going on in the world. What a great perspective. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So effectively, so that so 2012 to 2015 um, was really the exploration. Let's go explore things. So we started our first digital marketing company with a bit one. One business partner and... So the banking payments business went down to two people and you then shut it down? Yeah, yeah. So it went, we shut that down in 2015. Okay. And we're down to two people. And can I ask, before we move on, what did you what did you learn? If you had to pick something that you took with you into your future businesses from that particular business, what was the lesson? Uh, the, one of the big ones is back to that ride the wave. So I think we all too often get caught into thinking that our idea is the right idea or this is what our customer wants, um, whereas there's much easier ways to make money by riding the right waves. So you spend your time finding what those waves are and then go for a ride. I love the concept of ride the wave. It's a better perspective on what I usually say to entrepreneurs is don't marry your idea. The idea will change. Yep. You have to trust yourself that you can evolve with this idea. But I'm, I prefer the wave analogy. How do you choose the waves? Because like, if you were to follow popular trends right now, you'd be balls deep in NFTs. Well, I mean, you've got to say, there's a, you got to stick to your core competence as a starting point, right? So you can't just, there's no point in jumping from one to another to another because it's all part. So it's really within your sphere of influence, contact networks and that sort of thing. What what are the booming areas? And it's also a lot of what are the emerging booming areas. So really it's, and back to your um, concept of not being home to your idea is you, you got to let your customers take you. So just, you know, go and meet a lot of people, listen to what they're saying, what they're asking for, what their pain points are. Because if eight out of 10 people are saying it, it's, it's a real problem. So it's just, you know what, yeah. that's that's the wave is the demand of what people really want and really need. And just be very careful, I'll tell you what they want, but they're not prepared to pay for it, which is another one of my learnings. And that, that becomes your yeah. own middle wave. So they don't need to be massive waves. I mean, geez, you can have an awesome life when if you earn two, 250 grand a year through a business, you get all the tax benefits of and, and that's an awesome lifestyle, right? I love that comment. It was a bit of a throwaway comment, but it's such a poignant one where they tell you what they want, but they're not prepared to pay for it. And it's such an important thing that a lot of entrepreneurs misunderstand is, oh, but everybody's telling me that the feedback is great. They love my product. And my question is always, have they given you money? Because yeah. if they haven't, they're just criticizing or supporting. They're not customers. Okay, that was really insightful lessons on that one. So now it's 2015 and you're trying a whole bunch of new things. Yeah, so 2015, we effectively closed down to so it was the the payments business we closed down prior to that we also got into commercial finance and, and a broking business but we started about 18 months prior and once again closed that down primarily due to a disagreement with my partner at the time and so it was a new partner that i recruited specifically for this so he didn't have control of it per se but he did because he was the key person so i'm not a finance guy so he was ultimately the key person of influence in in that space and we we're on different so he wanted to go one way i wanted to go the other way um, and that ultimately led to to the to the, <laughs> the closing of of that business and the other one we so we started a digital marketing company in 2013 that with with a business well, another business partner you thought i would have learned but this is all learning in this one year right that they we went halves. He uh, bought the business out pretty much wholly. I became a very small shareholder in a, in a much bigger business. And it was we thought it was doing really well. And then, uh, once again, that business then imploded in the next six months. So it literally went from 
about I think we had like 280 grand revenue the next month we're doing 260 the next month we're doing 240 the next month we're doing 210 right so this this massive decline um, unbeknownst to, to me and out once again outside of my control of, of what I can do about it so I literally went from what I thought was going to be happy days and a good exit to uh, yeah, crap days and a, and a crap exit I'm intrigued how first thing is how did the business decline and the second thing is how were you all unaware of that? good good questions <laughs> so look ultimately there was there were two business divisions um, so the two businesses right and I was obviously in charge of one business and they were in charge of another business and so my my business was doing just fine knew knew the figures inside out and that sort of thing and the other business had instilled a new general manager and sales manager six months earlier that for the six months right leading up to was basically writing the coattails of previous work and then ultimately the customer satisfaction so started to lose clients but also hadn't closed a deal in nine months so just loss of clients, no new revenue, um, and once again, that what because I became a small shareholder in a larger pond, that wasn't communicated at all well until basically D-Day went and imploded. What I'm interested in about that is the lesson for a smaller shareholder is you have the right to ask. You have the right to inquire about sales, revenue, income, anything, because you are still a shareholder, even if you're a small one. Is that kind of what happened? Is you were just like, well, they, they know what they're doing. I'm the small shareholder. Let them go. Well, uh, look, in one way, absolutely. Uh, in another way is if I, even if I had done that, there was ways of them to sugarcoat the figures that it wouldn't have appeared until post-transaction anyway, okay. which doesn't really matter. And so once again, I mean, it comes back to your due diligence, right? Your due diligence just isn't what's in the um, spreadsheet that the accountant spits out at the end of the month. It's, you know, you, you got to go and speak to the customers, speak to staff, see where things are at. There's a, yeah, once again, it's your attention to detail becomes so important in, in, in business. So it's, you, you, yeah, once again, coming to that trust, as we were talking about before about your business partners is you've actually also got to earn the trust. So once you, your relationship's got to start, you've got to earn it. So it's just really important that you got to set those tangible, measurable yardsticks that people have got to meet through, throughout the journey. I, th- I think you've summed up the business partner concept exceptionally well that you have to first give trust so that you can build something together without any background. Like, yeah, I trust you. Like, you've got a, a background. Cool. Let's do this. Then you have to continually earn that trust. But it shouldn't be the business partner's job. Let's say you're the technical co-founder to go and check up on the business co-founder's work. That's not how it works. Otherwise, it becomes too difficult because you're constantly second guessing each other. And that's basically at the point where the relationship may as well not exist and you should be walking away. You start working really closely together so you know what's working, what's not, what's where things are at and that sort of thing. And then once you've earned the trust, man, go for it. You know, just, just deliver. And then when you don't, we're going to have a chat. <laughs> you say that like it's easy, but that part is the hard part for most people. Let's just have a chat. Is Most people don't just have a chat. Most people just let the, the relationship degrade from there. So that that is a really important lesson, I think, for co-founders. Say whatever you want. Like, there are no rules. Say the things you need to say. Ask the questions you need to ask. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself without a business in three months like you did. Um, and it's not it's not a, yeah. not a personal attack. It's, you know, I just I need to know what's going on, where you're at, why aren't you there? It's a lot easier to have a quick short, sharp conversation today than having a, a, a protracted legal dispute in six or 12 months time. So where are we now? Digital marketing, 2013, things are starting to ratchet up and then ratchet down. <laughs> yeah. And where do we so go from there? So 2015, I think was probably the one of the worst 
years of my professional life. So, so we shut down two businesses, exited one that I thought was going to do well and that then bottomed out and blew up by the end of the year. So it was like it was November 2015. I remember sitting in the office that we had. It wasn't a massive office, probably 250 square meters. And it was empty. It was just me. Um, sitting there everybody had gone the digital marketing company had retrenched all their staff we shut down the payments business and it was just a really it's a soul searching time right you go how am I fucked up what's wrong with me <laughs> what what didn't work what should have worked could have would have should have so it was really yeah tough times and then obviously that affects the rest of your life right so your health deteriorates you don't have the best relationship with your wife and at the time my kids would have been seven and five so you're supposed to be there for them and be happy and jolly and all that sort of stuff, and it just becomes a really shit time. But it's all, and it was all it was interesting though. Coming back to that necessary endings thing, it's exactly what we needed. So actually, I needed to get out of trying to do things what I the way I used to do them, and and really it was you know let's let's regroup. So once again, at the time was awful. In hindsight, was was probably the best thing that, that ever happened to me from a professional capacity. And how? How long and hard was the recovery from that experience? I mean, I mentioned that my my near business death experience. I was in in intense depression for about three months, yeah, uh, and then started to slowly emerge out of it. What did that kind of look like for you? Um, I think um, my wife calls me an emotional mute. Um, that I'm not very good. I I don't have a massive like my emotional I'm fairly stable overall which mm. which is is once again I think a, a blessing in disguise so might have been a week I was down the doldrums and then I was back at it I actually <laughs> I got how do I say this because there's a legal contract signed um I just I was I was driven to to get a bit of a recompense <laughs> from a previous colleague that, that got me started and then that just evolved into another digital marketing agency really is a part-time capacity once again when you've got a mortgage and, and two kids you need you need money coming through the door so you've got to do whatever you can to, mm. to to keep paying the bills and the mortgage and that sort of stuff and so really for the next 18 months it was really a part-time gig um, it was me and some contractors servicing once again 10 or 15 odd clients doing some some okay work and then really 2017. Okay, then phrase. So it was really 2017 where I said, "Get get your shit together, Ben." So, so, so this is no longer a hobby. Let's do something with it, and that's really where where I guess the concept of June North came about in 2017, which has really been towards that five years now. We've been at this and once again. There's it's probably three or four near what I'd call near death experiences through through that journey. So I remember. <laughs> Secretly selling some of our shares that my wife still doesn't know about. There's about a hundred odd grand <laughs> to to put into the business um, because we'd also like just from a personal level we'd spent it. So we had a trip to Europe with kids and a trip to the US and that sort of stuff. So whilst we needed it was we we didn't need to it was you know you know, once again the most important thing in my life is my kids right and so to have share experiences like that I'd, I would lie to my wife about taking money out of the business. <laughs> Uh, sorry, out of the out of investment, uh, put into the business to fund uh, your own personal lifestyle. So, I mean, that, and that's awful, right? I remember being, I, I love my outdoors, so I was on a hike in Central Australia uh, in the outback um, for a week and just the feelings of guilt, how do I fix this? It was just, yeah, it's, it's interesting that for something that is fictitious, right? Money isn't a real thing. 
but yet it so controls our lives. Like in, in like the human race has been around for like x hundred thousands of years. The universe has been around for thirteen billion years. Right, money's not a real thing. It actually, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's yet it's become so important to us, and it so controls your emotions in your life. And once again, when, when you don't have it, it's shit. Right, it's hard to do anything. You you can't afford stuff. You can't get a medical treatment for your kids. They can't go to the right school. Whatever it may be, right. But it's still a fictitious thing. But it just the way it affects you is fascinating. Just it's and it drives drives society, which is which is amazing. But just at the time, you're going. We we've got nothing. We've got I've got wages to pay in a week, and you go shit. This is crap. So you're going. I've been busy now for 16 years. Surely I'm better than this. Surely I should be smarter than, than doing what I'm doing. So it's just, you know, that's that self-doubt that just really creeps along. How do you cope with that self-doubt? Because I'm, I'm interested in that. Because I think, I, I mean, I echo everything you've said, especially the context of the universe being X-old, the earth being X-old, humans being X-old. Money is like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of our history, and we made it up. Yep. All of it. We made it up. But now it keeps us awake at night. It keeps our weekends controlled. It makes the poorest people poor. It makes the richest people rich. And then when you understand that and you start to continue to fail, like you said, I've been, I mean, I've been in business for 22 years. I started my first business at 16. Surely I'm better than this. Surely I should be killing it by now. If you do anything for 22 years, you should be a master at it. And I think that is the the fantastic conundrum of being an entrepreneur is yep. it isn't ever the same. If you're a violinist for 22 years, you will be an expert. If you're building businesses for that long, you just won't because they're all different. But how do you deal with this idea that, shit, I should be better than this? Like, how do you get up after that? It's interesting. I think probably the biggest impacts on my thought process from that is is i don't know whether it was deliberate or accidental or a bit of all of the above but it's from other people so some of the core um things that stick into my mind is so rich and um and the speakers course right is just the sessions in there and i'm going to get it wrong because it's been a while since i've looked at that material but be the best you and there's i remember talking about who's that guy i really don't like in the u.s fan of the marketing guy gary vaynerchuk yeah like i really don't like him uh, not in a bad way, but I don't get anything against him, right? But actually, I do. This <laughs> is how boisterous he is. But, but he goes, he's the best him, right? He, he's by far the best him, yeah. and, that, and, he, and he doesn't care about anything else. So that was that was, that was was a part of it. I remember, I think one thing I've been bad at, once again, coming back to my emotional muteness, is I just talking to people and getting help. So I, I, I went to seeing a, a psychologist, and I remember him go him saying, you know what, Ben, we're all just same, bozos on the same bus, right? It's, it's Everybody's going through the same stuff. And the other one was back to Entrepreneurs' Organization. I remember there were two separate meetings we had within the space of a week. So there was about 20, 24 business owners that you that I think are doing really well in, in life from, from all outwards appearances. And 22 of those 24 all said they had that imposter syndrome. I was just, I was going, what? These people that I've looked up to that I think are successful, um, wealthy, and, and 90x percent of them have that feeling of, I'm not good enough. Um, you go, well, mm, 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 all right, we've all got it. Maybe, maybe I'm okay. <laughs> so, I mean, you've summed up the, the reason this podcast exists because I've yet to interview anybody without them telling me that they felt like an imposter at the time that their failure was happening or that their business was under strain and because it's true and it's real and we all feel like we are just making it up as we go along yep
And we, we probably are, but that's okay, right? <laughs> we are. 100% right. We are. We absolutely are. And that's okay. I think it's a Steve Jobs quote, and it is one of my favorites. And I mean, one of the listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but he said that the rules were made up by people who came first. That's it. Yeah. That's the deal, is they didn't know what they were doing, so they made up the rules. You don't know what you're doing. You can make up the rules, too. You feel like an imposter, that's fine. Like, they did, too, and they still made up the rules. Correct. And look, I think, once again, coming back to this concept of business is it's actually, as soon as you understand that the rules are made up to serve other people, so ultimately it's back to that, that wave and demand, right, is the demand makes the rules in business, right? And this is probably my other my other near-death experience in, in the current business was I built the business based on what I thought people wanted, but also based on obviously my experience in the payment business of what I wanted as a customer. And so I built the first mm. model version of this business on on that. And it wasn't going all that well, funnily enough. <laughs> it was doing pretty averagely. It wasn't getting anywhere near where I wanted to go financially, personally, et cetera. And then once again, one of my more um, recent experiences is getting more coaches, right? So once again, my son's heavily into his basketball and, and my daughter into their dance. And I just said, they've got coaches for everything, right? So the coaches for the skills, for the defense and, uh, and nutrition, psychology, that sort of thing. And so I go, why don't I still have coaches? So I've kind of gone out of my way that, you know, in every aspect of your life, you should have a coach, psychologist, nutritionist, business coach, whatever else it is. Um, and so I had this, I guess she was kind of a performance coach. Um, and she goes, well, who do you think's your biggest competitor? And there's a company in Australia called, oh, I won't tell them because I don't like them much. But they, they were doing, like, they were just blitzing it, right? Just absolutely killing it. And she goes, right, go do some research on them. Come back to me next in a month's time and tell me, well, what, what are they doing differently from you that's, you know, why they're killing it and you're not, right? So we did the research of their product. We mystery shopped them. We did all that sort of stuff to see, you know, why, why are they better than us? Um, and we came, I came back with a list of two, or three or four core things as to why I thought they were they were better than us, and, and really they were pretty immaterial at the time. And she goes, "None of that's real, Ben." And I go, "What do you mean?" She goes, "It's not about you, right? It's not about what you want. It's that you know what they are selling the shit out of exactly what people want to hear." <laughs> I'm just gone. Not about you, right? So this, the moment we stopped that and, and started to figure out exactly what customers wanted, just it's we've done really well, right? And I think when that's the more I get into this marketing game, which I've been doing a long time now, is your positioning is is the most important part of a business. You can have a product and IP and that sort of stuff, but if you don't position it right in the market that's going to be resonate well, attract well, etc. You, you, you're fighting the tide. You're not riding the wave, right? So it's just, I think, one of the core takeaways, if I can impress on everybody, is, you know, you've got to get your positioning right. Um, when you say positioning, it's very, I mean, I've like you've been in the digital space for 20 years, so I, I have a clear idea of what it is, but can you unpack it in more specific terms, maybe using your example of what you weren't doing, yep. and then you had this moment with your coach, which, I mean, brilliant, I, I want to touch back on the coaching, and then what you started doing and how you repositioned to give people some context. So one of the things I wanted to do back then, which I actually don't anymore, funnily enough, and in hindsight, I never wanted to do, but I thought I did, you know, it's that thing that you think you do, but you actually don't, was to build my own personal brand. Um, so back then, two years ago, that was important to me to, to build my personal brand for, for, for a couple of reasons. And then obviously the byproduct of that is, is my business would grow as well, right? So, so then I started down meeting a few people that deal with personal brand building. And obviously one of the questions that 
everybody gets asked, but very few people answer, I think can answer well, is well, what's different about you? Why are you, Ben? Why, why are you good at what you do? And it was literally a 20-minute phone conversation with this lady, and she's brilliant, Nicole, thank you, was she distilled down that, so I'm an engineer, so I have a very methodical, logical systems approach. And then, so all of a sudden I've gone, well, that's a Captain Obvious. I've kind of known that all along, but she, once again, external people asking you the right questions brought it to the fore. So all of a sudden we've repositioned our whole business. So we really positioned due north and we're a bunch of uh, marketing engineers, right? And we actually build systems, marketing systems, and I look at little catchphrases that survive the test of time, right? So it's you know it's that long term. How do we engineer, build, science approach to what for most people is an often often grey, creative, uh, bit of smoke and mirrors sort of world. And that's that once again that positioning has done more for our business than anything else I've ever done, right? And and once again you 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 look at Salesforce and and Airbnb and Uber and that sort of stuff, right? Is they they nailed their positioning from day one right any unicorn is absolutely now their positioning they are so differentiated it resonates well with the target audience i remember the one of the stories about our bnb was when they're raising uh, once again i don't know how real these stories are but you hear the stories it sounds right uh, but they, when they were trying to raise some capital first raising of capital they were in la and their most of their clients were in new york i think it was maybe florida i can't remember and the investors go on, well, why are you here when you're, cu- you're and this is when they're obviously small, like when most of your customers, 80% of your customers are in New York. And so they jumped on a plane and went to New York and that was their breakthrough, I believe, because they were so close and intimate and giving exactly what their customers wanted, right? So this is, so and I'm going to add some spice to that story because I, I actually know that story relatively well. They were down to their last two or $3,000 and Paul Graham at Y Combinator said to them, why are you here? get on a plane, spend your last dollars and go to New York. And what they discovered in New York was because they were close to their customers, the people who were renting apartments successfully were the ones who were photographers and were able to take great photos of the Airbnb. So what the founders did is they literally took their last $500, bought themselves a DSLR camera and went around to all the listings in New York, took better photos and then it skyrocketed. That was the change in their thing. And it's what you've been saying this whole podcast, actually the theme through your messaging is speak to your customers, understand what they want and build that. Spot on, spot on the mark, right? And so your your positioning takes into account like it's that, it's why you're different, right? How do you, can you clearly articulate why you're different? But that's obviously got to resonate more from your target audience, right? And your value proposition, right? So what value are you really generating? It's not features, it's not benefits. It's what's that, that emotional connection? Like, so Seth Godin, I really like Seth Godin and a couple of his books do it really well in terms of what change are you looking to make? Who are you seeking to serve? He provides a couple of accesses that I really resonated well with, you know, choose two things that you can really differentiate yourself with. So to me, that's by far the most important. And, and there's, I, just, I look at, we're in a, once again, in the MerchantLink days, we got really good at sales, right? Sales methodologies, CRMs, process systems, scripts. You did 100, you only did 98 calls today, you should have done 100. Your, your average time on call was two minutes, whatever else it was, right? And that's, a me, that's the mechanics of it, and that can give you incremental growth. I can give you a 2% boost or a 5% boost or whatever else there is. But to double your sales, right, if you change your positioning, that'll double overnight. So the power that the positioning resonate will have to your business is fundamental, right? But it also it then flows through your culture, right? So all once again, all our staff in hindsight actually quite have logical engineering brains. So they're not engineers per se, but our cultural just without me knowing attracted those sort of people and obviously recruited those sort of people. So that that 
a positioning is your promise to the world. And obviously, you've got to fulfill that promise, right? So your marketing is that promise to the world, and you've got to fulfill it, right? So yeah, how you make sure you do that. And that's really where any really good business should be growing by word of mouth alone, right? So if your business isn't growing by word of mouth alone, I'd say your positioning is not right. So marketing amplifies the message, but you, you should be growing. You should be having, as a happy, happy customer, John should be telling Jill, right? Jill should then come on because she should be a happy customer and then she should be telling Barbara around the campfire that this is a great concept, right? And then you, you then start scaling exponentially by using advertising and Google ads and that sort of stuff, right? But that's it's the power of positioning. It just, yeah, it, it, I think very few businesses get it right. I mean, we've got a long way to go, but certainly it, it's, it's revolutionized our business in terms of happiness, financial return, type of customers we, we attract, the internal culture, what my team strives for now as well. So it's, yeah, I just, yeah, I can't stress how important it is. On that point, I've got two questions that I want to follow up with. The first is, when you had this realization about positioning and your USP, what made you realize that this was the one? This is the thing you should lean into. Like everything else doesn't matter. Was, now is the time. It was a light bulb. So it was that 20 minute phone conversation with Nicole. And she goes, so, so you're an engineer. You're, you're a marketing engineer. And I've gone, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was literally, that's it, right? I've gone my whole life. I've known that's my logicalness. And I've gone, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why did I meet you 15 years ago, right? <laughs> It's, it was, oh, it, was it, it was like a light bulb moment and you're going, that's what I've been searching for. That's so that's my elevator pitch. I'm now happy. I sit around a barbecue. Once again, I think coming back to all the business owners, I know they hate the elevator pitch. They hate telling people what they do most of the time. Um, it's, it's because you haven't quite refined it enough. So it, it literally it was a sledgehammer. That's it. Let's roll it out. It takes, it takes a long time to roll it out. So don't get, but it was, yeah, it was astronomical. As soon as we started telling people. And so once again, back to that MVP concept, just test and trial straight away, right? So just bring up five people you know, this is what I'm thinking. They go, nah, 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 yes, yes. So once again, I think Seth, Seth says, if to talk to 10 people and if you got two that like it, you've got something right. If you got, if none of them do, drawing board. I mean, it's an interesting thing and an observation I'm making more and more that when we are good at something as humans, we assume everybody is good at it and therefore it's not a USP of our own. And it's a very strange human psychosis that we just assume, oh, well, like I like speaking and I've been a speaker since I was 17. So that's not a valuable skill. Nobody's going to pay me for that because it's so natural to me. And it's basically what you went through is somebody else had to look into your bottle and read the label and go, you're an engineer. Let's use that. And that's, it's interesting. So if you're listening, my question would be, what are you good at that nobody else is that you think everybody else is? Maybe that's your USP. So on that point, now you've got this figured out. The thing that is interesting to me is the ethereal concept of positioning versus the go-to-market. This is who we are. Now, you've said you did some MVP calls. That's great. But now you've decided that this is your market positioning. Yep. What do you do next? It uh, depends a lot on the business, right? But obviously, first first is your staff. So they've, they've got to be they've got to agree with it, right? So if, if you say this is who we are and they're all going, nah, <laughs> you know, there's something not quite and right. And that, that's what you did? Yeah. The first thing you did was go and talk to your staff about it? Uh, so it's trusted trusted advisors or friends and family, that sort of thing was certainly the first protocol. So one pager. It's, you know, me. So there's probably a couple of weeks of tweaking it, running it past a few people that I really trust. And then you run it past a few more and they go, yeah, yeah, that, that looks good. That makes sense. Then it's through other important people. So staff, 
once again to me is, is vital in every business so it took them through it they said that all makes sense and then it's I tried on a few leads inquiries and they've gone oh yeah that, that's great so once again, I think our conversion rate has gone from about say 20 15 20 percent we're probably at 75 percent now um, from a, wow. a that's, and that's all there's some qualification we do in there because obviously we, we don't work with everybody but certainly from it's been a long time since somebody said no to the, the process we take people through from from that sort of wow. perspective um, but then then it's just not you got to roll it out right so you got to update and this is where you also need a wordsmith so finding a really competent wordsmith this Mark Holmes person is really hard but they're awesome Right, so you've got to find them that can write the catchphrase on your homepage of your website, can update all the copy. You need to re- you'll need to restructure. Generally, need to restructure your website because your off your how you position your offering will become different. What your um, selling points are. So out of that should also become a, a brand promise or a brand guarantee. Saying so ours ours is really doubling in revenue in three years. So it's a twenty five percent growth year on year. So it just becomes a a good measurement stick, it becomes a really clarifying and tangible thing that people can go, yeah, that makes sense, I understand that. So that positioning involves, so it's brand strategy, it's your marketing assets, it's the tactical, let, let's roll it out. Amazing. I, I do, I have I have a couple of questions of things that you mentioned that I think are important that people don't cover enough. You said you started seeing a psychologist, what was the tipping point? What made you go, this is not for me, and holy shit, this is the best thing I've ever done? Um, so, I think it's like any. And we'll jump around a little bit with that, with an answer to that. But I think it's like anything, right? I think in my book, ninety percent of this might sound a bit harsh, but I think ninety percent of people aren't all that good at what they do. I think there's there's I don't rephrase that. There might be twenty percent that are crap. There's sixty, seventy percent that are mediocre. There's twenty percent that are good, and there's ten percent that are great, right? Whatever those stats are. So it also means that you're gonna to have to try nine coaches before you find the 10th right and that's where networks become really important so finding the right people that you resonate with um is is really really important i mean you know that as a kid right i watch my son's basketball coaches some he loves because they're great with him he resonates well others he doesn't like because he doesn't get along with them and i think one of the, the additions to that is obviously with age is you understand that nearly everybody's got wisdom in them. It's just in different formats that whilst you may not resonate well with them, you could have two, three or four sessions, get some really good stuff out of them and move on to the next one. And once again, a bit of a plug for, for EO and Entrepreneurs Organization. I think that's one thing they they really hammer home and do an amazing job of is ultimately whether you like that person or not is not relevant. I mean, everybody's got some great stories to tell. Everybody's got some learnings that they, they can pass on. And it's just, it's your problem challenge or fault if you don't go in with an open mind trying to learn from people so and just i think one of the other things just be really clear on what you want out of them i think everybody gets into a fair bit of strife when you're not clear on what you want out of a coach or a different coach or a advisor or a psychologist so i think you just need to be really clear on what you want out of them and then the the thing that that uh, surprised me because i've been there and i experience it too all the time is bad business partner, bad business partner, bad business partner. My question is why? Why did you keep going back to business partners? I'd still love one. So don't get me wrong. I just, I'd love, I think it's that, and I don't know if it's, it's that romantic idea of, you know, like two heads can be as good as five. You, you, it's that complimentary, probably not a messy amount of different why you get married, right? Is it's somebody that compliments you, that, that makes you more enjoyable, more fun, challenges you, pushes you so once again i think it's that how you had two 
one plus one becomes five type concept is, is really important. Mm. But at the same time, you can pay for that. As, as I've got old, I've realized, you know, you can actually pay for a lot of that stuff and it's it's a lot easier. It's better off long term to pay for it than it is to give up equity for it. But uh, yeah, I think it's just, it's you need great people in your business, whether they're partners or staff or advisors or whatever else. It's, it's it, it makes all the difference. Yep. Okay, Ben. So in closing, tell our listeners where they can find you, follow you. I know that you're not interested in a personal brand, so where they can buy from Due North. Give us anything that you want to share. Uh, yeah, just uh, web address, dunorth.com.au. Uh, yeah, still the, the .au in Australia. Um, I'm a little bit on LinkedIn. Uh, just Ben Hirons, I think it is. I think I'm the only, uh, the, the main one there. Inhabitant or Ben at dunorth.com.au email address. Love chatting. Um, happy to answer any questions, ideas, that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I'm not, not very social on the social media, but, uh, but certainly happy, happy to have a chat. <laughs> Ben, thank you. This has been absolutely incredible. And I'm super excited that for you and Due North, it's not over. Nope. Long time yet. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Nick. That was great. Enjoyed it. I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube. Then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the Knowledge Bombs.